0: Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would meet us here this morning, that as your word is preached that you would be speaking to us. That you would guard our hearts, that you would strengthen our minds, and that you would direct our paths. Lord, we ask this knowing that you have spoken in your word that scripture is you, not man speaking. So we ask, Lord, knowing that you desire to meet your people here this morning. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. What's the relationship between uh, our Christians and Old Testament laws? That is no small question. And how we answer that question will generally divide people up into many different uh, theological camps. Uh, Should Christians, for example, keep the Sabbath? And if so... What does that look like? What does it look like when a Christian keeps the Sabbath versus a, a Jew in the first century? What about the laws about not eating certain types of food, like pork? I, myself, love bacon, especially on my cheeseburger. What about the laws forbidding wearing mixed fabrics? It's here that we generally find unbelievers uh, will point out in their pride and ultimately their ignorance They will say, hey, you Christians, you're inconsistent. You say, follow this part of the Bible, but don't follow uh, that part of the Bible. How can you hold on to the commands against things like homosexuality in Leviticus while you still eat things like shrimp? Take for an example a New York Times best-selling book. The title of the book was this, The Year of Living Biblically, One Man's Humble Quest. It really wasn't humble, but one man's humble quest to follow the Bible as literally as possible. This book tracked the life of an author named A.J. Jacobs. As he grew a beard, he ate kosher, wore single fabric clothes, and did so many other things. And all of this was done in some tongue-in-cheek manner to grind his axe against Christianity and to show how absurd these Old Testament laws really were. These laws are ridiculous. How could anybody keep them all? How uneducated must people be to follow Scripture? But I posit to you that as complicated as the Old Testament laws were, that our laws are actually far more complicated than anything you will find in the Old Testament. I remember one bill that passed Congress once. They put it on a, uh, on a dolly and it stood as tall as me. So you, want, you think about how complicated Old Testament laws were. If you ever read the statutes in our state or our nation, you read them and go, I can't understand what this actually means without a lawyer. Our laws are every bit as complicated as the Old Testament ones, let alone if you took any time to actually read the guidance and guidelines throughout uh, the COVID pandemic. It was quite clear that no one could keep them. No one could keep all of them. And I think that was part of the point. And yet this man's book has a 4.5 stars rating on Amazon, was best-selling. It even got a really cheesy TV show made out of it that I think only lasted uh, one season. But it shows how little Americans really know about the Bible and how little they actually know about Christianity. I remember a New Testament scholar talking about that he was being interviewed once on this documentary about uh, the Bible. And his words, not mine, was that as he was talking with the different crew members and being interviewed, there was only one person, one young lady in the entire group who even understood that the Bible had an Old Testament and a New Testament, let alone the relationship between the two. And so despite the many different theological camps within Christianity, with dealing with the Old Testament law and us today, uh, we, we see that for 2,000 years, just about the entire church came to the same conclusions. We get, to different, we get there for different reasons, but we all pretty much come to the same conclusions. There is no major sect of Christianity, for example, that follows the food laws. Why is that? There is no major sect of Christianity that follows the sacrificial laws. There is no major sect of Christianity that follows the wearing of clothing of only one fabric. Is that because we are all hypocrites? I would say no. Have we ever wondered at this amazing uniformity from the Catholics to the Protestants to the Orthodox Church, from Presbyterians to Baptists and Pentecostals? We all pretty much stand on on the same conclusions, as it were, about the Old Testament law and today. And the answer to, to why that is so is because the New Testament spends a lot of time talking about this issue. A lot of the letters, even I would say most of the letters, deal with this issue in some fashion. All Christians recognize that something radically shifted when Christ came. Something shifted. Now we'll disagree on the specifics of the how and the why, but they all agree that something major happened that changed the covenant. And if you ever encounter someone who doesn't know the difference between the Old Testament and the New and you can be sure that their objections are not based in any understanding of Christianity. They don't know the basics. So within the evangelical camp, there are several basic subcamps on how to deal with the Old Testament law and how it applies to us today. And I'm going to paint in very broad strokes here, because we don't want to be here uh, all day. The first would be Covenant Theology. They basically divide the law up into three categories. I'm sure you've heard this before, many of you. Those three categories are moral laws in the Old Testament, ceremonial laws in the Old Testament, and civil laws in the Old Testament. The moral law, like don't steal and don't murder, are unchanging. The coming of Christ doesn't change that at all. The ceremonial laws, sacrifices, uh, food and clothing, purity laws, are fulfilled in Christ and therefore no longer applicable to you and me today. And the civil laws are those given to the nation of Israel's government. And the church is not a government, so those laws don't really have a one-for-one application to us today. The famous reformer John Calvin mentions this uh, framework in his important work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. The second major camp would be dispensational theology. In dispensational theology, you can think of, it's what am, I, what am I mentioning here? If you think about the books left behind, left behind books and movies, that's, that's a summation pretty much of at least the most popular branch of dispensational theology. And they see a sharp break between the Old and the New Covenant, that most of the laws tie, were tied to the prior dispensation or period of time and have little application for Christians today. They still have applications for ethnic Israel today, but not so much for Gentile believers. And then there are a smattering of other groups who see some level of continuity and discontinuity between the old and new covenants. Again, that's a massive oversimplification, but it gets your feet underneath you a little bit. And I generally find myself agreeing with covenant theologians on some things and disagreeing with them on others, and agreeing with dispensational theologians on some things, but also very much disagreeing with them on many other things. And generally, when I find myself agreeing with one of these two camps, it's for completely different reasons than the reasons that they give. But almost all of these camps would agree and land in the same place. You're not going to find a dispensational or a covenant guy um, who won't eat bacon based upon it still being applied today as it was in the old covenant. And as I've studied scripture the more I see that if we really want to understand, moving from the old to the new, that the work of Christ is central to it. Any and everything that you bring over from the Old Testament has to be worked through Christ. In passages like Galatians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and following, Luke 24, the whole book of Hebrews, and yes, Colossians 2, 16 through 19 give us essential foundations for understanding our relationship to the Old Covenant. Paul explains here that what has come before are shadows and that what we have in Christ is the substance of those shadows. At the heart of the false teaching in Colossae that Paul is dealing with is some blending of Judaism and taking the Old Testament law and the Old Covenant laws and blending that with pagan mystical practices and then saying, if you want to be a good Christian, you have to follow these things. And Paul comes in and says, no, you don't. That's not how it works. The substance belongs to Christ. The substance has come. And so the big picture here is seeing Christ at the heart of the Old Testament. And so today, we'll spend some time seeing that these things are shadows and seeing how Christ is the substance. And then there's some glorious implications for this. There's some glorious things that that then means for you and for me as believers. So look at verses 16 through 17 to start, as we look at the shadows versus the substance. Paul writes, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So Paul's talking about here is that You're not to allow yourselves to be judged by others based upon following the food laws, the festivals, the New Moons, or even the Sabbath. As righteous or unrighteous as Christian, this no longer matters. So clearly, the false teachers are saying the exact opposite. You must observe these things if you are going to be righteous. And it is almost certainly tied to a messed up understanding of those laws in the Old Testament. It cannot be stressed more here that Paul starts this section with the word, therefore. He's pointing to what comes immediately before that. What do we have immediately before that? We have our union with Christ, his sacrificial death, and his victory. Because of what Christ has done, therefore, you don't need to keep these things anymore. One of the striking things today that I find is that this we, we like to look back at the ancient food laws and go, man, they were crazy. But one of the things of our day is that more and more people are finding righteousness in what they eat and don't eat. Don't tell me it's not true, because you know it is. Food, new food laws are all the rage. People will literally judge you for what you do eat and what you don't eat. Whether if they judge you for eating gluten or not eating gluten, whether you eat processed foods or sugar or you don't. We have become just like the ancient world. We have started to ascribe moral value to food. So let me, let me be clear here. I really don't care if you eat gluten. I don't care if you don't eat gluten. It's an, it's not a big deal, really, one way or the other. If you want to eat healthy, that's good. Go ahead and eat healthy. But there is nothing inherently wrong or sinful about gluten, or not gluten, about bacon, or not bacon. And there's this tendency for us to locate our own righteousness in silly things like this. But there's nothing inherently right or wrong about certain types of food. Take care of yourself, eat well, observe the broad guidelines that Scripture gives that you should be thankful for your food, and you should even make rooms for feasts. It's good to have good-tasting food. It's not necessarily wrong. In other words, there are a lot of ways to sin with food. You can sin with your food by being ungrateful for it. You can sin with your food by becoming self-righteous over it. You can sin with your food by becoming gluttonous or greedy. The list could go on and on, but the problem isn't in the food, it's in your heart. The object itself isn't the problem. God created the world good. The problem is, is how we value things over people. The main point here that Paul has is that all of these laws, all of these rituals, the Sabbaths, the food laws, are merely shadows and the substance belongs to Jesus. There is a lot we can say about the imagery here. What does it mean for something to be a shadow in the substance? Well, first, shadows here means that they prefigure Christ and his work. They prefigure Christ christ in his works a shadow comes as it shines onto an object and then it kind of resembles that object and here the shadows in the old testament resemble christ second paul means by shadow here is that they're temporary the shadows were like a foreshadow in a story not only do they point forward but they're not meant to last forever they're intentionally temporary So as important as the Sabbath was, and as important as the food laws were in that covenant and in their proper time, they are no longer that important because the fullness, the substance, has come. The problem is, especially here as physical and religious beings, we like to hold on to those things because we can touch them, because we can control them, because we can feel them in our hands. We don't want to let go of the shadow. We see this, I think, in two different ways with those two major camps that we talked about. Covenant theologians tend to want to not let go of the shadow of the Sabbath. Most covenant theologians tend to be Sabbatarians. They think we should observe the Sabbath. They also don't want to let go of the shadow of the circumcision. They think it's picked up and transformed in baptism, but they don't want to let those shadows go. Dispensationals tend to be overly obsessed with ethnic Israel. When I get mailings from Christian stores, I'm always amazed that there's page after page after page of stuff you can buy that are ethnic Israel things. And they make them because people buy them. There's nothing, again, there's nothing wrong in the object. If you want to own those things, I don't care. But it does say something about a theology that tends to treat the shadows as the substance and the substance as the shadows. That's not good. The Old Testament shadows are shadows that point to Christ who is the greater reality. And sometimes dispensationals act as if Christ is the shadow and the substance is actually Israel and their rituals. And that can be a subtle form of idolatry because it displaces Christ for something lesser. Let me give you some examples here of what Paul means by shadows and substance. Let's say, I went away to war. And my wife, Emily, gave me a picture of her to remember her by as I went off to war. And that picture is a shadow of my wife. It's not my wife. It's a shadow that reminds me of her. But let's say I come home from war, and instead of embracing my wife, I will only cling to her picture. You would say, did he get hit on the head? What's wrong with this guy? This shadow is nothing in comparison to the fullness of my wife. Or, for another example, let's say you went to see the Rocky Mountains. And you stand at the base of the mountains and instead of looking up at all the beauty of the mountains, you stared at the shadow they cast at the ground the entire time. And someone walks up to you and says, look at the mountains. I'm like, no, I like the shadow more than I like the mountains. It's silly. But it cannot feel silly when you're doing it with religious things. And this is exactly what Paul is warning That's about. My wife is better than any picture of her. The Rocky Mountains are greater than their shadows. Christ is greater than the Old Testament shadows that point to him. And so we should act like that is true. And this was what was happening in the church of Colossae. The false teachers were exchanging the glory of Christ for the shadows of the food laws, the festivals, and the Sabbaths that were all about pointing toward Christ. So even in elevating these things, they've actually destroyed them because their whole purpose was to point to the substance. This is the interpretive principle we must keep in mind as we move from the Old Testament to the New. Everything works through Christ. Jesus tells us as much in Luke 24. He shows up on the Emmaus road and he tells his disciples as they're walking, he starts with Moses and the prophets and he walks through the entire Old Testament showing them everything that there is in there about him. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says these words to the Jews, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does that mean? Well, he's brought in a new era. The law and the prophets, now that Christ has come, have been fulfilled. They have moved into an entirely different state of being. John 5, he says this. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them that you have eternal life but it is they that bear witness about me. If you want to find life in the Old Testament, that's what he's referring to in the scriptures there. They only have life because they point to me. And so we see these great Old Testament shadows, and all their glory and all their wonder, because they are wonderful, ultimately point to Christ. And they're meant to bring us to worship him. Jesus shows up, and he declares that he... And the glory that we find in the temple, that Christ is the temple. You don't need to look forward to a rebuilding of a new temple because Christ is the temple. He tabernacles or dwells with man and he says to the Jews, tear down this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. They misunderstood him because he was talking about himself. The temple is a shadow, Christ is the substance. The manna in the wilderness that sustained the people of Israel. Christ says that he is the bread of life that has come down from heaven. And that you need to eat him if you actually want to be satisfied. Manna is the shadow. Christ is the substance. The water from the rock that flowed and brought life to them in the wilderness. Jesus declares that he is the living water and he invites everyone to come and drink. And Paul goes so far as to say in 1 Corinthians 10 that Christ is that rock. The water is the shadow. Christ is the substance. In Ezekiel 34, we read of a coming shepherd who will feed the people of Israel on the hills of Israel. And the gospel writers go out of their way as Jesus is feeding the 4,000 and he's feeding the 5,000 to allude back to Ezekiel 34 that he's feeding the sheep on the hills of Israel. And then in John 10, Jesus says that I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The shepherd imagery throughout the Old Testament is a shadow. Christ is the substance. On the Day of Atonement, the people of Israel would take a lamb and the high priest would go over to the lamb and he would pronounce all the sins of the people upon that lamb and the lamb would be killed and slaughtered. And when Christ appears, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. The Day of Atonement is a shadow, and Christ is the substance. The Passover, which sets the people of Israel free from slavery, comes as death literally passes over them because there's blood covering them on the doorposts. And as death passes over us in Christ, we observe his blood in the cup that death would pass over us. All the glory you find in the Old Testament is meant to bring you to Christ. I could go on and on and on, list after list, but I hope you get the point. The Old Testament pages are dripping with foreshadows of our Savior. And I beg you, don't exchange the glory of the substance for mere shadows. For the fullness of that glory is your salvation, is the person of Christ. We now move to implications. So Jesus has done this. He is the substance, the new realities. What does that mean? For you and me well because christ has died he is victorious and we are victorious in him but the first therefore is what we've been talking about because of this you do not need to follow the food laws you do not need to observe the festivals you do not need to keep the sabbath as a matter of righteousness again as far as i can tell i think that's plain black and white in the text for us don't let anyone judge you according to food new moons um What you drink, sabbaths. And so, we are free to not keep the sabbath. And to some extent, every Christian acknowledges this because even the sabbatarians move the sabbath from Saturday to Sunday and they don't keep it to the same extent that the Jews did in biblical times. Christ is the substance of the sabbath. How do I know that? The Bible tells us. First, the sabbath is a sign of the covenant with Israel. It's specifically tied to the covenant that God makes with Israel at Mount Sinai. Just as circumcision was the sign of the covenant with Abraham, and we are not bound to keep circumcision, so is the Sabbath a sign of the covenant God makes with Israel at Mount Sinai. This is what we read in Exodus 31, verses 16 through 17. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. This is picked up throughout the New Testament, this theme of the Sabbath being fulfilled. We read in Hebrews 4 that there is still a Sabbath rest there for us to enter. And that you and I have to strive to enter the Sabbath rest. Well, how do we enter our Sabbath rest in the New Covenant? We enter it through Christ. As you keep reading in uh, Hebrews 4 and 5, the Sabbath rest for us is found in Christ, who is the substance. This is why Christ says in the Gospels that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He does healings on the Sabbath. And he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And then he says to anyone who is weary and heavy laden, they should come to me and find rest. The Sabbath rest we all long for is found in Christ and will be found even in more of a full way when Christ returns. Of course, there's still wisdom in God's design of creation that you don't work all the time. That you still should take a day off and not work. There's also the commands that you should be worshiping the Lord weekly. All those things still apply, but it's not the Sabbath of the Old Testament. Paul makes this clear again in Romans 14. He says, One person esteems one day as better than any other day, while another person esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. Let me put it plainly. You don't get to just make up your own mind on the Sabbath if it's still a command that you have to follow. Paul says, if you want to follow it, go ahead. If you don't, you're fine. Because it's no longer binding. And so we see the work of Christ changes everything. And those who want to criticize Christians for holding on to moral commands in the Old Testament while not observing food laws or purity laws demonstrate that they don't know the first thing about Christianity. They don't know the Bible really well at all. You are no longer, because you are in Christ who is the substance, you are no longer bound to keep the food laws, the festivals, or the Sabbath. The second, therefore, doesn't just stop with food laws, but Paul also says that you, therefore, do not need more revelation. You do not need another word from God. The substance has come. Look at verses 18 through 19. Let no one disqualify you or disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. There's a lot going on in that verse. Uh, The false teachers are insisting on asceticism, which is denying yourself pretty much any physical pleasure. And this was generally done in the ancient world. You would do that to then enter into these mystic experiences where you would have visions of angels. And Paul says the irony of this is, is that the more you focus on denying the flesh, the more fleshly you actually become. You become sensuous in your mind because you're obsessed with the flesh. But what I want you to notice here is the worship of angels, and these individuals going on in details about visions. False teachers would harm their body, deny themselves, and then have some super spiritual experience, some mystical experience of seeing angels and having visions, and then they would go to the people and say, now you need to live according to this vision, this word from God. And much like some of the extremes we see in in the charismatic movement, with people wanting to appoint new apostles today, or saying they have a word from God God to you, such spirituality often has more to do with paganism than it has to do with Christianity. And you, you need to hear that. Paul says that in seeking these things, these people have ended up denying the head. That's Christ. By seeking another word from God, they end up denying the substance that they have in Christ. And as influential as the charismatic movement has become in the West, it has a tendency to teach us to demand another word from God. That if you really want to know how to live your life, God's going to have to come down and beat you over the head with it and give you a special word so that you can know how to live. That's true spirituality, we are told. But scripture warns us, be careful if you go down that road because you might end up abandoning your head who is Christ. Hebrews 1 tells us this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed to be the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. God speaks to us in one primary way in this dispensation. I shouldn't use that word. (laughs) In this time frame. His Son. He speaks to us in His Son. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 that you have everything you need for life and godliness in Scripture. You don't need another word from God. It is not a sign of you being more holy or more spiritual by having mystical experiences. In fact, all throughout church history, it is generally through mystical revelations that false teaching comes into the church. You can think of Joseph Smith. These revelations of an angel coming down from heaven and now we have Mormonism. In fact, you can think of the the prophet uh, Muhammad. An angel from heaven came down and gave him the Quran. It is through false mystical experiences again and again that false teaching comes into the church. God has given you everything. You have the substance in Christ. You don't need a new word. Therefore, One more implication. In Christ you are secure. Look at the rest of verse 19. And holding fast to the head, who is Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Christ is our head and he will knit us together and grow us into what we need to be. This reinforces that Christ is central to the Christian faith christ is all he is in all he is lord over all and he died for his people this means it is not the intensity of your faith that saves you it is not the greatness of your spiritual deeds and works that saves you but it is the greatness of your savior who saves you he is the substance and the reality and everything hinges on him And that is good news for us today because Christ is the creator of all and the sustainer of all. And if any of it depended not on him and on you, we would find a way to lose it and mess it up. But Christ keeps us. So this whole passage is a call to cling to Christ who is at the heart of everything. To not be distracted by the shadows, but to honor the shadows as they are. Signals that point to Christ. To not go looking for further revelation, whether through mystical experiences or hollow and deceptive ideologies, but finding truth in Christ, in Christ alone. For he is enough. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you this morning that you have spoken to us in your word and that by your word, we see the glory of Christ in his work. Lord, may you train our hearts and our minds not to be led astray by shadows, not to be led astray by new revelation, but to be firmly rooted in the person and the work of Christ. The one who created all things, the one who holds all things together, and the one who is redeeming all things by the blood of his cross. May that be our life's goal, our life's foundation, and our life's aim. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.